Greetings, my intergalactic family. My name's Ricky, and welcome to Ricky's Mysteries and the Supernatural Podcast. We'll talk about everything from UFOs to ancient megalithic sites to Bigfoot and the supernatural. We're going to talk about all of it on this podcast. Now let's all hop on the Tic Tac and let's take a ride down this interdimensional wormhole. Greetings, time travelers, and welcome back to another episode of Ricky's Mysteries and the Supernatural Podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest. His name is Tom Quackenbush, and he's an author who I met at the Pine Bush UFO Festival this year, who gave a lecture on some of the most incredible topics that I'd ever heard. Now, one of them in particular was very interesting, and I knew that I had to ask him to be on the show, and he graciously accepted Tom has written over 40 books. You can check out his biography and bibliography on his website at tomquackenbush.com. It's T-H-O-M-M-Q-U-A-C-K-E-N-B-U-S-H.com. I don't want to spoil the story, so I'm just going to let Tom tell the story. Tom, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Tom, how are you today? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. So I wanted to start out today's conversation by asking you, what drew you to the subject of the paranormal? I honestly am not too sure. I do know the minute I learned how to read in elementary school, I went right to that paranormal section in my school's library, and I just read that through again and again. I was deeply offended that unicorns were there, but otherwise I found it fascinating. So what subjects in the paranormal are, are you most drawn to? What interests you? Well, back in the day, I was a believer in all of this stuff, and slowly it came to me that maybe this was not always a physical thing and that they were not so discreet like i definitely saw it like there was the physical things there was like bigfoot there were aliens and then there's stuff like psychic powers and magic and slowly the more i read the more i'm like oh these might be the same thing there's just some source there's the paranormal unified field theory that all these things are somehow one i don't know how they're all one but I like the idea. I mean, if you think about it, energy is an, is an interesting thing, you know, and it can manifest itself in so many different ways that we don't understand. And I mean, perhaps, you know, these things that we see as uh, poltergeists or, like you said, cryptids and things like that, you know, uh, have something to do with that. Um, you know, some people call Bigfoot, uh, you know, an ancient primate and some call him an interdimensional. So, I mean, it, I think it does all meld together. Uh, yeah. one way or another yeah bigfoot's actually a good example because when i grew up when i started learning about bigfoot he was an ancient hominid you know he was the missing link between man and ape and then i started hearing stories that you know he would appear with ufos he would vanish you if you shot at him he wouldn't be there anymore i'm like well that's not a physical thing that's no ape does that so yeah the paranormal is weird you wouldn't think but it is I mean, there's just so much that we still don't know that's that's out there. And uh, it's just it's just fascinating that we continue to hear reports every single year of more and more people seeing these things. So it's not a question of whether or not it's real anymore because it's real. The question is, yes. what are we what are we dealing with? So let's see now. Um, tell me a little bit more about your research into the paranormal. Now, you've you've also you're an author, correct? I am. I write a fantasy novel series that takes place in the Hudson Valley, and I have assorted other books, um, some of which are 
deal with more of my paranormal misadventures. I have one called Holidays with Bigfoot that talks about, you know, uh, my wife seduced me into going to Northern California on our honeymoon by saying, oh, well, the Bigfoot Museum's there. I'm like, well, I have to go to Willow Creek, of course. (laughs) And we spent two nights at Lizzie Borden's bed and breakfast. We did not see the ghost, but other people in our group did. Oh, wow. So, yeah. (laughs) Wow, that's a paranormal encounter. Is there anything that are you particularly interested in or or that that you have a particular area of expertise in? I suppose I've done more stuff dealing with UFOs because of Pine Bush, New York. Um, I did research for my novel, Artificial Gods, where I went to the United Friends Observer Society meetings, and I went on sky watches with them. And a lot of that made into the novel, and we just pretend it's fictional. But no, a lot of the stuff in that novel actually happened. I just put the words in other people's mouths. Can we talk a little bit about that, actually? Because I know we were were going to initially start talking about something else which we'll talk about later but you know one of my favorite subjects is ufos i've been witness to them and i think that the this in this area and the hudson valley is special and uh, unique for the ufo sightings that have happened since not only the 80s but even predating that back in the 1900 early 1900s and even into the 1800s now um, sounds like you've done a lot of work and research into that. Would you like to share anything with me about that? Well, worldwide, the Hudson Valley is one of the most ufologically important place in the world. You know, there's Sedona, there's around Area 51, and there's the Hudson Valley. The Hudson Valley UFO flap was one of the biggest mass sightings of UFOs. And if it happened now, it would be on Instagram. Influencers would be here. But it happened in the 80s where the best thing you're going to get is an expensive consumer camcorder that looks like a children's toy now. Right. Yeah. But so, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure why the Hudson Valley, like what is it about here that's so important? In Silent Invasion, which is a book by Dr. Ellen Crystal about this, about ufology, and specifically ufology in Pine Bush, she talks about how there's a large portion of tungsten in the ground. Uh, Bruce Cornett also said that Pine Bush, New York, is the inverse of the Cydonia region on Mars. I'm not sure why that would make the aliens interested. Mars isn't populated or interesting, but that's what he said. But I'm not sure what about the Hudson Valley made that interesting. You know, we have these stone chambers, but I'm not exactly sure are they on ley lines why do the aliens want to be here (laughs) right yeah that's the big question i feel like from what i gather there's definitely an energetic part to this you know and the more stories i hear and the more things i research into and um you know the phenomena that's in this area not only the ufo flaps of the 80s but also you know we're talking about the stone chambers which look like ancient sites you know and they happen to be There happened to be over 200 of them allegedly in one small area in Putnam County. I've seen them a little further outside, and then we have things like the balanced rock of North Salem that are very Mm -hmm. interesting because you see these structures not only, uh, you know, across the pond in Ireland and England, but you see them all over the world. Now, I I was interviewing uh, Linda Zimmerman um, not that long ago, and she had mentioned that one of the people that she had interviewed was really big into the stone chambers and during 
that UFO wave of the 80s was witness to some UFOs actually appearing over the stone sites. We do have other interesting things here. We do have some ley lines. We have one that intersects just above Kingston, Kingston uh, New York. We also have something interesting that I don't know if anyone has really talked about, but I've noticed that all along this area of the Hudson Valley, we have a lot of, we have two Buddhist monasteries and we also have two Christian or two or three Christian monasteries all within a very close area. And we have a, a friend who's a, a Buddhist nun and I asked her one day, like, how do they, how do they decide where to build the monasteries? And the answer that she gave me was just incredible. She said that they actually get a monk to come from Tibet to perform this uh, divination practice called Mo, where they throw two dice that are carved with uh, symbols, and then they make important decisions based on on that. And apparently, the the Dalai Lama himself uses those as a divination uh, practice when he has to make important decisions. So I'm thinking to myself, like, so it must definitely have to be something again with the energy of this area or something about this area that's bringing all this, you know, all this, you know, spiritual energy and, and earth energy, et cetera. So I just, just so fascinating to me. And the UFO phenomenon is a big part of that for sure. You know, there's thousands of witnesses and have, and let me ask you a question, Tom, have you been witness to any of the, these phenomena here? I have a couple of funny stories about that. One is when I was very young, probably seven or eight, I saw the Hudson Valley UFO. That it it was actually over Glenham, New York, where I lived. I was coming home from my cousin's birthday party, so that puts it mid December, and it was not like lights, little lights in the sky. This was a large triangle. That you know, I was an inventive kid, but I would not have invented that. And I stuck my head out the window, and I was yelling to my parents like, "Oh my God, look at that!" And they told me to put my head back in, I assume because they were terrified. And when I got home, I'm like, things are going to happen now. The aliens are here or the ship is here. And then nothing happened. And I had been telling this story for decades. And then my parents came to one of my talks and they're like, yeah, we don't remember that. I'm like, no, no, you remember after Phil's party. They're like, no, we don't. (laughs) And I've checked and this sighting appears nowhere in the record. Like, and I find it difficult to believe, especially given the Hudson Valley UFO flat and how close it was that no one saw this. But you also see in the ufological record, people who like one person gets abducted and the other person's like, I was in bed with you. I don't think that happened. I don't remember that. So either I made this up and it was one of my most realistic, weird memories, or I saw something. but I can't tell, like, I can't find verification for that. So I do kind of lean toward the, maybe I just dreamt it up. Maybe there was just something in the collective unconscious where I knew exactly what that ship should look like and imagined it. But it's definitely not like a dreamy sort of thought. It seems very real and concrete. And I thought it was true again for decades until I was telling this story and my parents were like, yeah, no. And I'm like, oh, it was just really cold out because it was December. And that's why you told me to roll up my window. But it would be such a tiny memory of your child sticking his head out of the window in the winter. So, of course, they wouldn't remember even me freaking out seeing something. And they did not see it, you said? They did not see it. But why would they, in a sense? Like, if your child is screaming like, oh, my God, there's something up in the sky and you're half a mile from your house, you just let him talk you tell him to roll up the window and you go home like you're driving you don't need to look up 
Wow. So they didn't. That's very interesting because a friend of mine had a very similar, very similar experience when she was a child. They were driving down a road and her mother was driving and she was in the back seat. And I think through the sunroof, she remembered, you know, that there weren't a lot of cars with sunroofs at the time and that she looked up through the sunroof and saw a black triangular object right over the treetops that was literally following the car. And when uh, they got to wherever it was that they were going, she had assumed that her mother had seen it, but she hadn't seen anything. And she kind of told her to, you know, dis- to, to dismiss it in a way. That's, uh, that's so shocking that that's, that the story sounds so similar. Can you tell me a little bit about what the shape of the object was and if it had lights and how close it was? I mean, it's always hard to estimate how close something is in the sky, but it was massive, and it did not look very far over the house. Like, I can still picture the house it was over. I know where that corner is. You know, it's very vivid. So it was a triangle. It had, I think, like amber lights, but it was very concrete. Like, it blanked out the stars. You know, there were street lights. I could see its shape. Wow. Yeah. What and, what, you know, what uh did you what did you feel in that moment? I was excited uh, because again I had already started reading about UFOs and all of that and I didn't expect that I would see anything and that was something that I felt was unambiguous even though I said after that I really didn't see UFOs. A lot of times people see a UFO, it primes them they keep seeing things. I didn't. Um and I looked for them and it just never happened again. Certainly nothing like, well, years and years later, my friends and I were joyriding around Pinebush looking for something. And my friend was actually filming on a really crappy camcorder. That may be like the through line here. And, you know, not seeing anything, I went, hey, guys, what's that? And I saw three lights far away lift up from the woods, kind of turn on its edge and vanish. And they all, my friend would not pull over. Um... But we all saw it. It was recorded. But then when we played it back, it was so far away and the camera was, you know, crappy. So there's nothing on there. And my friend eventually just deleted that because all you see on that video is a bunch of teens and 20-somethings flipping out at a dark sky. (laughs) But, you know, it wasn't like I had other supernatural experiences, really. You know, I had that one in Pine Bush, the one in Glenham, I worked at the Haunted Mansion at Bowdoin Park, and I groped a ghost, but I'm also willing to say it was dark, it was smoky, and maybe, you know, Paradolly, maybe I just filled in the shape. I filled in... <laughs> right, do you want me to tell the ghost story? Sure. Okay. So, it's a little hard to explain, and it puts me in a bad light, so that's why it's a good story. <laughs> so... I was cheating with this girl who also worked there, and her boyfriend went to another part of the scene. So this girl and I were making out because we were bad people, and we were like 16 or 17. And so then he was coming back, so I went, and you could go backwards in the mansion because if a group comes through, you want to be one scene away. You want to be one scene closer so you can run back. And the first room was on a recording, so I knew exactly, like, when certain effects would go and when the door would open so they could come through. And at the Haunted Mansion, you're supposed to wear black if you're backstage because then you're more invisible. And I saw a girl in the corner, she was maybe five, four, dressed in a white dress. And 
we always had different people volunteering, so it didn't really, you know, it didn't affect me that there was a girl standing there. And I said, that room's almost about to end. You need to get out of here. Like, there were many hidey holes. It wouldn't have been a problem. And she just sort of cocked her head to me. And I said, you have to go. And I went to grab her shoulder, and my hand went through. And then she just faded away. Wow. And again, I was like, huh. Like, it didn't scare me. It's like, hmm, that's weird. And I went back to the girl I'd been making out with and her boyfriend and said, I just saw the ghost. Because, of course, we thought there was the ghost, the singular ghost who haunted this plywood structure. But, yeah, um, I understand, like, you know, the brain fills in a shape. I can't say, oh, you know, this is the ghost of so-and-so. Like, I looked it up. No one died there. <laughs> and, you know, we... We will get into the collective energy of something can sort of manifest, but there was no girl, no girl. There's no like, oh, that's Isabel Fleming. She died in 1794. No, it was just, I saw a thing. I touched the thing. Thing isn't there. Wow. So and you, and you said that you weren't scared of it, right? That's, I would have no, been terrified. <laughs> I would have been terrified. Well, because it like, you know, my brain is like, oh, there's a girl here. Oh, she's going to get seen by the group. That's bad. Oh, I have to pull this girl away. Oh, the girl's not there anymore. I should go get out of here. And I just calmly walked back, hid in my little hole. And then I told my friends what had happened. I would have, I would have run out of there screaming. What, I mean, maybe what? that is, yeah. <laughs> that, but that's just me. Some people are braver than I am, I feel like, when it comes to that. And clear, yeah. clearly you are. Now, was that the only uh, ghost story that you've, or ghost that you've encountered, or have you had other paranormal experiences that um, have I to do? I really think. Oh, go on. Oh no, I was just gonna say if uh, they have to do with the ghost or maybe something else. I really don't like those are my big ones, and I'm definitely willing to write off all three as like, you know, well, one maybe I imagined it as a child. I don't think I do. But I've checked, and there's no verification. This happened after the big Hudson Valley UFO flap. You know, I sightings are very well recorded, even back in the 80s. And certainly now, you could look up every sighting in New York, and that's not one of them. And, you know, I saw a ghost, but I saw it at a haunted mansion where there's fake smoke. So... <laughs> <laughs> and then in Pine Bush, I saw three lights, and then I didn't see them anymore. And that was maybe a matter of a second while I was racing down, I think, West Searsville Road. So, again, that's not a great sighting. Right, but a sighting nonetheless. Now, a sighting, yes. But Now, have these experiences changed your perceptions in any way? Have they changed you in any way? Or has this actually made you more interested in the subject? I'm about as interested. I almost find it a little embarrassing, both that I have so few experiences, and these are the experiences I have to, like, hand over, that I don't have some feeling like, oh, I saw a Bigfoot, you know, here's what happened, oh, I have this shaky video. I don't really have anything other than, I think I saw this, you know, and then recollecting it to people i don't even know per my friend in the car in pine bush if i could call most of the people in the car and they know what i was talking about <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay let me ask you a question about bigfoot 
there's been reports that Bigfoot exists in the Hudson Valley. Have you heard of this? I have. I actually live very close to Dale Beatty, who is the head of Bigfoot researchers of the Hudson Valley. Okay. I gave, yeah, I gave a talk with her at the Red Hook Town Hall where they had some great sightings and some less than great evidence. What was objectionable to me, I guess, is I went to a pre-planning meeting and one of the men played this audio sample which he i mean he did prime me somebody he's like all right what you're gonna hear is there's a juvenile bigfoot and i open the door and in its arms it has a little coyote and i was like okay and then he played it and i'm like no that's what that sounds like wow (laughs) you know and i mean it didn't sound like maybe he just did really good audio editing and i said you should play this when we give the big speech, he's like, no, the evidence is too good. People won't believe it. I'm like, give them a shot. This sounds way better than they have a lot of pictures of, oh, that's a bunch of trees. But if I highlight it this way, you can sort of see a face, and that's not going to convince anyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they had good evidence. They just didn't share it. So, so there's still some evidence out there that we have yet to hear. Yes, and I don't know if we're going to hear it. Well, that's really but, unfor- that's unfortunate. But to be fair, my wife was at the pre-planning meeting, and I think this man referenced his Bigfoot friend who had wings, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's a flying Bigfoot. My wife said he didn't say that it was flying. He just said that it had wings. I'm like, good point. So we're not sure if they're flying Bigfoots. Could be. Well, there is the Mothman, but that, that's not there what they is. saw, right? No, no, he he definitely felt like it was specifically a Bigfoot, and apparently it had wings. That's just... Yeah. That's amazing. I love cryptids. Me too. I went to the International Cryptozoology Museum years ago. I met That's the one in Maine. That's the one in Portland? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. Um, And, you know, I went through it, and then I wrote about it in Holidays with Bigfoot, and I tweeted about, like, oh, I went here and here and here. And Lauren Coleman's like, that's great. I'll buy a bunch, and then I'll sell them at the museum. Like, oh, that's great. And then he got one, and he read it. He's like, so you don't like my museum? I went, I like your museum fine. You were just moving in. I'm sorry if it seemed that way. I was excited. I was glad to meet you. But <laughs> it was underwhelming when they were still moving in. Yeah, but I hear they're really great people, and some of the stories that uh, you know are told to them from people that come through there are particularly fascinating absolutely and lauren coleman talked about how he inherited all these cryptid artifacts from a researcher who died and then his family's like yeah we're just gonna put him in the dumpster he's like no 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 let me save them so i guess part of the cryptozoology museum is just rescuing these things that otherwise disinterested families would throw out well i'm glad that they're doing that work because uh, that would be a shame to lose the uh evidence you know yes Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. So tell me a little bit about, so you wrote a book, right? Your most, Yes. okay. Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. All right. I have a book coming out this summer called The Curious Case of the Talking Mongoose. This is ahead of a movie coming out called Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose, which stars Simon Pegg and Christopher Lloyd with Neil Gaiman as the voice of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And this is, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but the actual case of Jeff is factual as much as possible. So 
I guess I should go into what Jeff is, and then we can get more granular. So Jeff, as it suggests, is a talking mongoose shrug. What happened is in 1931 on the Isle of Man, the Irving family lived in a place that they called Dorlish Cashin, which just means Cashin's Gap in Manx. And they didn't really want to live there. Jim Irving had been fairly well off working for the Dominion Piano Company. And then there was a wartime tariff and pianos couldn't really be shipped. And he went from earning, I think, 600 pounds a year to 39 pounds a year working a farm that had four inches of arable soil and living in a home that had no electricity or running water. So he was not happy. And he originally didn't want to live there. He bought it so that some workers and his son Gilbert could run it. And after about 12 years, Gilbert said, done with this, done with you, and pretty much exit the story. So in the farmhouse, they started hearing like grumbling from the walls. And again, this is a rural farm. I think they were two miles away from their nearest neighbor and four to eight miles away from Peel, the nearest town. So they were remote. And so hearing a little grumbling thing in the wall is not unusual. First, Jim Irving, the patriarch, tried to poison the thing with rhodine, which is just a rat poison. And it, you know, dramatically vomited and screamed all night. I think he described it like a stuck pig being like killed without anesthesia, something to that effect. Um, And so that didn't work. It just screamed and made horrible noises. Though later on, Jeff is like, yeah, I didn't actually eat the rat poison. I'm going to try not to do a voice for Jeff, even though I desperately want to, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I I mean. I know. If you want. If you no, want to, you can. I don't, you know. No, I, I don't know what a good... I mean, apparently it sounds like Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So then he tried sealing up all the holes in the wall that still didn't stop it, thinking that it was a physical thing in there. And then he tried barking at it, and the thing barked back at him. And then he tried other sound, other animal sounds and it would repeat it back to him and it got to the point where he could just say cat and it would meow <laughs> and from this it progressed to babbling like a baby and within six weeks it was not only saying full sentences but it was saying full obnoxious articulate sentences which is why i really like jeff the talking mongoose like a lot of times in 40 and phenomena you know, what's Bigfoot going to say? What is the big Bigfoot quote? He moans and he hits trees. But Jeff says things like, I'm the eighth wonder, I'll split the atom. <laughs> so he's fun. You know, I would not want to sit down and have a chocolate bar with an alien. I don't think that would be good. But hanging out with Jeff sounds really fun. He sounds like a cartoon character. That's like a living, it, like a living cartoon. Yeah, he actually, he's a lot, he reminds me of Bugs Bunny in a way, because he's a trickster. You know, he's hiding in walls, he's saying ridiculous things. And one thing that Jeff really doesn't like is doubters. Um, So he would specifically not come out if he thinks someone doubts. He would insult them. He would say that he would shoot them with a gun, which he's like two pounds, so how's he going to do that? But he just, he hated doubters. I'm trying to imagine this. So is is Jeff in the walls of the house or is he out in the living room standing no, on his on the, his hind feet <laughs> saying uh, this? Um, as far as I can tell, like, Jeff is usually only seen for a minute or two. Voira Irving, the 13-year-old daughter, at least when this starts, she 
could pet him sometimes. And there is a story about Margaret Irving, the 50-something matriarch, and she once stuck her finger in his mouth to measure how big it was, and he nipped her. And she's like, I'm going to get blood poisoning. But it's also weird that you want to measure a thing's mouth by sticking your finger in there. <laughs> Seems like a bad idea. Um, I forgot where I was. <laughs> Oh, so he, so uh, Jeff, um, he's a, he said he was a trickster. And... Yeah, he is a trickster. Like, and like a trickster, he sort of, he's not going to give you what you want. He's going to give you what he wants, and he'll do what he wants. Um, and also, we'll get more into it. But the nature of a trickster is, you know, he's made a lot of people know about him. He didn't love that idea. But then when they came to look, you know, maybe you want to just fudge it a little bit because. Jeff isn't talking, so maybe you make a sound. And you see that a lot with trickster phenomena, where people are like, oh, well, you know, usually we have a haunting here, and now I have all these reporters, and maybe while they're not looking, I'll just throw something, and everyone's like, well, the whole phenomena is fake. I saw you throw something. Yeah. But there's a lot in the case of Jeff the Talking Mongoose that points to perhaps it was true, and perhaps it wasn't a hoax or almost fully not a hoax but there are parts where it's like yeah that's suspicious now did jeff did he would he just appear in the house or would he appear outside of the house or both or good question whenever he is quote-unquote seen outside the house he does not look like a mongoose there's one point where Jim Irving was outside and he saw a Manx cat with a bulldog face. And um, Jim is like, I thought about shooting it, even though I'm not a violent man and I have nothing against cats. But he did not shoot it. And then the next day, Jeff said, it was me you saw out there, Jim. <laughs> but definitely a Manx cat with a bulldog face could not fit in their, could not fit in their double paneled wall, you know, Jeff could barely fit in there if he was indeed this little two-pound rodent-like thing. So another thing about Jeff is he would know things that happened outside the house. There was one time that he was away from the house for a few days to see some festival, I think 50 miles away. That may be too far, but pretty far away that no one else could get to. When he came back and he said who all the announcers were, I think there were four, he named three correctly, and he described what happened, and no one in the house could have seen that. There was no radio. Again, they had no electricity. All they had was a wind-up Victrola. So how did he know this? And this was confirmed. And unfortunately, the residents of the Isle of Man especially didn't like Jeff. They said he wasn't real, that the family was making it up. But they also didn't like him because Jeff would relate things that they said in their houses or things he had seen. It actually got to the point that the local bus depot was discussing how to kill Jeff, and they tried to electrify the bottom of the trains and trams because he was supposedly riding on them. This did not work. Jeff did not get electrocuted. Oh. <laughs> but they tried. Wow. Yeah. So clearly nothing can affect this creature. <laughs> I mean... Well, and it's, and it's very elusive, it seems, as well. Yeah, apparently. You know, he was rarely seen, if ever. Going back to the potential hoaxes, there are photographs of Jeff. They're all really unconvincing, like almost intentionally so. If you took, like, a ratty stuffed animal, it would be more likely. 
And what is also interesting in the pictures is the Jeff you see in each picture looks very different. <laughs> um, yeah, they took some pictures of basically an empty field and they sent it to Harry Price, who was a psychical researcher who went in and examined the house and was not happy with the phenomena. But he did write The Haunting of Cash's Gap with R.S. Lambert all about this, where they were very judicious in what they said. And so Jim sent him a blow up of the picture and he highlighted where Jeff was. And he's like, yeah, I guess if you really maybe squint, it could possibly be something. So that seems really hoaxed. But Jim Irving is a very intelligent man, the whole family is. And so why would you submit an obvious hoax to someone who will happily debunk it? That's stupid. Jim Irving is not a stupid man. There's, yeah, the other physical evidence is Jeff submitted to having his hands and feet and teeth imprinted in plasticine. And each of the paws is a different shape and none of them have texture. So they're not skin. He submitted to having his hair removed. And when he submitted it to Reginald Pocock, who at some college he was some naturalist i don't remember where he was and he said yeah this uh this is from a dog and not only was it not pulled out like jeff said it was clearly cut (laughs) by the way it's the same dog that you have (laughs) and jeff is like nope that was mine so there's jeff being a trickster if jeff is real that oh i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you hair and i just cut it off the dog but again if jim irving did that that's stupid He had to know that was going to get debunked. So why would he do that? He really loved Jeff. Jeff was like his son who went away. Like, I talk about how Gilbert is like, I'm done with this farm and I'm done with you. Well, Jim was very loving toward Jeff. Jeff was definitely the child he never had, which is a little sad because repeatedly in the record, you see researchers and people who visit who say, yeah, Voira's really cold toward her parents, and they don't really seem to care about her that much either. Like, she's just sort of distant. So, instead, Jim Irving lavishes his parental attention on a mongoose in the walls. Now, I think you may have mentioned this earlier, but what year did this happen again? Um, It started in 1931. Supposedly, the last sighting of Jeff was in 1942, but it's really unclear. Like, in as the phenomena went on, Jeff got quieter and quieter, and he would take vacations. And he went from like, oh, you know, I left for a couple hours to I left for a couple months. Interesting. And the family probably didn't care very much. In a sense, they felt trapped by Jeff because when the story got out, nobody really wanted to deal with the Irving family, and they definitely didn't want to buy their house. After it was sold after Jim's death, I think in... 41 or so and it sold for a steep loss because nobody wanted to live in this haunted house i would definitely want to live in the haunted house (laughs) so yeah it sold at auction at a fraction of the price he paid when he bought it i think in like night the mid 1910s yeah okay yeah (laughs) so i mean and that's another thing to underscore is this was not a money-making proposition Mm. You know, the Irvings 
got it was a huge loss to have Jess in their home. They didn't make money from it. And there is correspondence between Harry Price and R.S. Wimbert talking about how, oh, you know, if the book is a success, maybe we could give Jim like one third of the royalties because he was so helpful in making it. And they didn't really put that forward. They didn't tell Jim that they might do this. But even when, you know, the book was out, Jim said, well, shouldn't I get something? And they're like, the book was a commercial flop. It made no money. I never make money from writing books. It's always at a loss. And so Jim got no money there. Jim would not, like, take admission. He did accept a small amount of money from Nandor Fodor, who was, I think was a research officer um, for the Society of Psychical Research, because it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to be eating your food. I'm going to be staying there. Here's a little bit of money, just so, you know, you're not operating in loss there. But otherwise, you know... He was bad. Jeff was bad for the Irving family in that way. The only money he really brought them is he would strangle rabbits, which then they could sell in town. Wow. Yeah. And that's also kind of interesting, the strangling rabbits, because, you know, he's supposedly a mongoose. Mongooses do not kill that way. But Jeff, instead of having four paws, had little doll-like hands, which even there's a part where... I think he squeezes Jim and Boira's fingers, and they're like, yes, it was cold and hard. I'm like, did he actually have doll hands? <laughs> but, huh. yeah, very few people actually saw Jeff. Boira described him as being small and yellow with kind of like a badger face with a pig nose, which, again, does not look like a mongoose. I think... Harry Price had someone draw a picture of Jeff and showed it to him. And Jeff said, that ain't me. That looks like a llama. <laughs> I told you, he's very sassy. That's why I love him. So, so Jeff, now let me ask you a question. Did different people see Jeff in different forms? Was, was Jeff able to um, manipulate people's perceptions? That's interesting. Well, there is one story where fishermen came to the Irving home and they were just hanging out and telling stories. And suddenly they all looked at one of the guys who was petting the air in front of him. And they said, what are you doing? He's like, I'm petting the cat. And they're like, what cat? And so this guy's like the white cat. And then the cat, I guess, ran away or something. And no one else could see that cat. Now, it's not definitive that that was Jeff, but who else would it be? Why else would there be that? But yeah, only only that one sailor or that one fisherman saw that. Wow. So yeah. So that's that's continuing this whole thing of him being a trickster, right? Because I guess if you can alter perceptions, you can make people see whatever you want them to see, which is incredible because that reminds me a lot of the stories of fairies, for example, or uh, the leprechaun, you know, that they're able to shapeshift or disappear and things like that. In fact, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the origins of uh, Jeff? Jeff claimed that he was born in 1864, about, in India. He said he was, um, that he lived with a hunchback, a man in a green hat, and a man named Holland. And then arrived at the Isle of Man 20 years before they, he met the Irvings when a man named Irvine brought a bunch of mongooses over to help deal with pests. And he said he was one of those. 
And aside from the fact that, yes, there was a man named Irvine, and yes, he brought mongooses there, none of that is verifiable. In fact, though Jeff knew a bunch of languages, curiously the same languages that Jim Irving seemed to know, he did not know any Hindi. He could not, like, he had some things that he said, but Christopher Yosef, who wrote the book Jeff! Exclamation point. He submitted some of the things that Jeff had said to someone who did speak the language, and they're like, yeah, this is nothing. This is nonsense. There's no language here. It just seems like what someone being vaguely racist about Indians would make up. Huh. They didn't phrase it exactly that way, but that is the feeling I get from what they said. What Jeff reminded me of initially when I, I read the small piece that you had sent me, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, Tanuki of Japanese folklore. Does that ring a bell or ring, excuse me, not ring a bell, ring true with you? It does. And there's also the Kitsune, the box trickster. A lot of, I mean, he is an animal trickster. There's no question, but he's potentially shape-shifting. At least he's not really seen by most people. And he is, I mean, the whole thing could be seen as a prank. If he wanted to, he could easily have been proven but he chose not to. There is something that um, Harry Price wrote that basically said, if he would just allow himself to be verified, the Irvings would be rich. You know, if he just gave us a little bit, I would definitively say that there was something here. Harry Price studied Borley Rectory, which is one of the most haunted places in England. So he is willing to grant some leeway, but Jeff never showed himself at all. He knew things that he had seen. Although one time, Jim reported that Jeff heard Price and Lambert talking about how, oh, it would be better if Jeff would speak when each of the family members were eliminated one by one from the room. And that is the opposite of what Price and Lambert wanted. They wanted everyone in the room all like looking at them when Jeff spoke. And so they didn't have this conversation. And when Jeff supposedly overheard this, they actually were behind the house cutting the dog Mona's fur to have tested against the Jeff fur. Mm. So wouldn't that be a more interesting thing for Jeff to have reported? Right. Right. But there's another thing when Nandor Fodor went there, Jeff said, oh, I was at this mansion 20 miles away. And oh, you know, it has this and 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 this. And there's no way... You know, unfortunately, the Irving family did not have money until 1936. Voira Irving hadn't even been to the, I think, the north side of the island where she was born and grew up. Mm. So they were not Mm well-traveled. And um, when Irving and Nandor Fodor went there, the owners are like, oh, well, you know, he got this right. But then he talks about there being lions at the fireplace. There are no lions on the fireplace. And then Nandor Fodor goes over and is like, you have carvings of lions on your fireplace. And the woman's like, I just don't look at the fireplace. But yeah, so that meant that Jeff knew something that the people who own the house didn't know about their house. Mm. So where did that information come from? Right. That's uh, so. so, so interesting. I actually 
remembered what question I was going to ask you because I had, I write everything on post-its and that's not really the best way to organize your thoughts. And so I had put projection. I was like, what was I trying to say with that? So I, it came back to me, thankfully. So what I was going to ask you was you had mentioned how Jeff knew the same languages that the owner of the house. Yes, Jim. Jim. What kind of uh, stood out to me was that could this possibly be a projection of of him that he is manifesting or something that he's being able to manifest himself? That is a good question. And my theory, now we're going to start getting a little bit weirder, <laughs> is that he wasn't just a projection of Jim. He was a projection of all the family. We'll go through it systematically. We have Voira <laughs> Irving, who is a lonely 13-year-old girl. And with Poltergeist, when do they start showing up? When the girl starts having her period and feels repressed and bored. So that's definitely Voyeur Irving. She doesn't really have friends. Like, even before Jeff the Talking Mongoose, she was kind of spacey and weird. And she cared a lot more about animals and machines than she did about people. So there we have, oh, potentially psychokinetic energy. Then we have Jim Irving, who was very educated before being reduced to being a farmer on the Isle of Man. I have no idea why that's what he decided to do. I've looked. I think that's a poor decision. That's what he did. Um, and he, depending on when Jim is talking, there are parts where he's like, I know nothing about spiritualism or any ism. But Harry Price is like, oh, yeah, he knows all about spiritualism. He painted what is described, I think, as Jewish symbols on his chicken coop or Jewish mystical symbols, which it's not exactly clear. Like, I would like to have known what those symbols are. Did he just write a couple, like, characters from the Kabbalah? So did Jim Irving know something occult? Who knows? But he did paint that on his chicken coop. But he always had a fascination with other cultures, even though he was very stifled. There is a quote, I think, from Nandor Fodor where he talks about, had Jim Irving been in a cult, had Jim Irving known more about, like, magic, this whole thing would have proceeded on more occult lines. Like, that he felt that Jim Irving did create Jeff psychically, though not consciously. And then we have... Margaret Irving, who everyone is like, yeah, she's a witch. She's so witchy. Like, there are three or four people who meet her. They're like, there's something about her. She's psychic. Even Harry Price, who was basically trying to be a skeptic, is like, I know psychics. There's something of the psychic about her. People in town were like, oh, I don't know about her. Nora Nichols, who was sent there almost as a spy by Harry Price, she used a fake name because by this point, Jim Irving was not fond of Harry Price. He felt like he was getting cheated. So he sent this woman to like, be an independent investigator. And this woman, when she showed up on the island, Jim Irving was already sitting there with a car, having no idea when she'd show up. And he's basically like, yeah, my wife told me you'd be coming right now. Wow. So you have these intelligent, curious people, and then suddenly they create this. There was also the theory, I don't remember who said it, that that Jeff was not a completely spiritual figure, that perhaps Jim sort of impressed psychic energy onto some poor animal and made it speak. So That's another interesting theory, absolutely. 
Yeah, there's the whole occult idea of the tulpa. Um, Alex, I mean, most people when they talk about tulpas bring up Alexandria David Neal, who was the first white woman let into Tibet, something like that. Um, and so she learned all about Tibetan mysticism. And she claimed that in 1912, the Dalai Lama was like, oh, yes, well, you know, that a really talented student could project, like, sacred figures into the air. And so creating a mongoose isn't that big of a deal. But Alexandra David Neal did try. She really focused on creating this little fire talk monk. You know, she spent a lot of concentration just envisioning him, bringing him into the world. And finally, she's like, she did it. She could kind of see him. And if she really focused, she could feel like the brush of his robes against her, which is great that she could do that. But then, like any creation, she kind of let it have a little bit too much leeway. It started stretching out, and its features got more angular and sharp. And she's like, I'm not sure if I like this. And then one day, someone bringing her milk is like, hey, who's that guy by your tent? She's like, what do you mean? And he described the tulpa she had created perfectly. She's like, no, nah, this is not okay. And so she spent six months banishing him, just systematically disassembling him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So the Irving family could not do that all at once. There are people now who they call themselves tulpamancers. And they try very hard to create their own tulpas for various reasons. I do have to say that a lot of them are, were making My Little Pony figures, like from French of Magic, focusing their energy on creating a tulpa of a pony. And I guess they were successful, more or less. There are Reddit threads of these people who... They do this. I mean, it's not always cartoon characters. You can create anything if you put that amount of energy into it. They say it takes between 200 and 500 hours to make this sort of thing happen. They also do something called switching, where once they have their tulpa, they kind of give their body over to it, sort of like possession. Mm. But this is actually, I guess, healthy for them in a sense. Like, it helps heal emotional and physical wounds. I don't know. I haven't tried this. I'm actually writing a book right now, a novel, where this plays a part. But yeah, and so people are still creating tulpas. I guess if you wanted to, you could create a tulpa of just a talking mongoose and bring him back, if that is what he is. This uh, is so so amazing to me because now we're talking about, so like this this has to do with psychokinetic energy now. You know, we're going into, yes. we're going like, we're blending between the cryptid world, the, the spiritual world, the, in, the inner world, our minds, psychokinetic world. I mean, it's just, this just encompasses just about every phenomena there, there is pretty much, except yeah. the, the, U, <laughs> the UFO hasn't shown up yet, but it's not to say that there's... <laughs> as far as i know there are no ufos mentioned at all which is fine it's weird enough without aliens <laughs> yeah i know right yeah <laughs> oh my goodness and you i think you had mentioned also that this uh someone had investigated this case correct oh yeah so you have harry price and rs lambert um Harry Price did not want to do this investigation. He was done with charlatans. He was not interested. But I think this case was just too weird. So he gave it a shot. He didn't actually want to give it a shot. There was um, some professor, his last name is Jode, who had worked with Harry Price on a different thing a couple of years 
before where they were trying to for Goethe's 100th anniversary or something to that effect they were going to try to turn a goat into a prince using a ritual from this ancient German manuscript hmm. which of course they did not think was going to work but it became this big media sensation and it was basically like they were mocked for it <laughs> And it's like, yeah, but they didn't expect there to actually be a prince. But Joe is like, no, I don't want anything to do with this right now. No, thank you. He And he said, like, oh, I just don't know Lambert. So I don't really feel like I'm comfortable doing that. But no, it's definitely about, like, I did a ritual with you, and it made me look stupid. I'm not doing anything else that's ever going to make me look stupid again. <laughs> and so Harry Price is the one. He visited three or four times over the years, and he never saw or heard Jeff. He was open to it, but Jeff also saw him as a doubter, so he wasn't going to do that. There's a chance that if Lambert had gone on his own, Jeff might have spoken to him. I think that he was a little more favorable towards Lambert, but Jeff did not show himself or make any sounds for them. And Nandor Fodor of the Center for Psychical Research went, he was a little more credulous. He was willing to believe I think he was, you know, of a more psychic mindset. And he actually wrote this really heartbreaking letter when he left. He's like, Jeff, I'm sorry that you didn't come. I brought you chocolate and biscuits, and I hope that we could eat them together. It's just really, like, sweet. He sounds like he's like a psychologist trying to tempt a child into interacting with him rather than a parapsychologist. Right. But... Yeah. So I kind of look forward to the movie just to see how he is portrayed on the screen. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see what angle they take to create his likeness. Um, yes. Now, what what happened to Jeff? He faded away, which, you know, if he's a poltergeist, that kind of makes sense. The Voira got older and older and he disappeared more and more. Mm. Voira Irving maintained to her death in 2005 that Jeff was real. It would have been so easy for her to just say, my family made it up. I'm sorry. They made me do it. And then she could have had her life back. She gave. She was famously retiring. She did not want to really talk about Jeff. There are people who contacted her being like, oh, you know, I'll give you this. I'll give you a thousand dollars. Just talk to me. And she said, no, I won't. But she did talk to someone from Fate magazine who she gave an interview and she maintained like, no, Jeff was real. I don't know what he was. I wish he had not been involved in my life. Like I couldn't get married. I couldn't really have a life. I was always seen as the Dolby spook. Um, she was actually, Moira was, is often the one that people blame for Jeff. They're like, oh, she was a natural ventriloquist. She threw her voice across the room. There are no natural ventriloquists and ventriloquists can't actually throw their voice anywhere they just have their lips still when they're making sounds like you're not confused like they may look the dummy so you pretend the voice is coming from a dummy but you can't actually have it across the room and jeff would be heard like scampering in one part of the room and his voice would be somewhere else but Voyer was sitting there not doing anything. There was one reporter who came, and they're like, they heard Jeff talking, and they looked, and Voyer was like sitting there with her hand over her mouth. So they crept to the kitchen, and Jeff was not heard where Voyer was, but they still crept over there. They're like, what's Voyer doing? And she's sitting there chewing on a piece of string. Mm. <laughs> so Voyer at no point was actually seen by anyone like doing anything ventriquilial she said like if she could have done that she would have made a lot of money but she couldn't because that's impossible mm. 
So, you know, you can't give her magic powers in this one way to debunk that there's a talking mongoose. Or so, or so we think. <laughs> or so we think. Well, no ventriloquist has shown the aptitude for actually displacing their voice in a room that way. Right. They just, you know, keep their you know, mouths still while they're looking at a dummy and we go for that illusion. And so there was no way it could be that. No, there are people who say because the walls of Dorlish Cashin were like double paned. Originally they weren't because, but it was so cold. Like Jim Irving moved in and he's like, this will not do. I need to actually have some insulation. And so that's why Jess could be heard scampering behind the walls. And they're like, oh, well maybe they just speak into a hole in the wall and then it's projected from somewhere else. Mm. And I'm like, okay, where in the record does anyone ever try that? They don't. They're like, oh, I have this theory, and zero people ever test it. Mm. I mean, I don't know why. A lot of times, like, with Jeff's languages, it's like, okay, see if Jeff knows a single language that Jim Irving doesn't, and no one does this. Mm. You know, same way, like, you think that this house is a giant speaking tube? Prove it. It shouldn't be hard, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because there's always going to be people debunking and attribute it to uh, natural phenomena, you know, et cetera. It's the, yeah. the same story every time, unfortunately. It's it's something because it has to, you know, when I hear these things, I don't always see things with a skeptical eye, admittedly. But so many people talk about it to the point where, I mean, this was, this was a written account, right, that came out. It was published, right, by the... Oh, yeah, and there were so many newspaper accounts at the time. And, you know, some of them, again, they said it was Voira. But a part of that might be like, well... I can say that it's some teenage girl and make her look foolish. Well, it is the patriarchy, so that's what we're going to do. Even though it doesn't really make sense, we're going to say it was her. And, I mean, it is an easy answer. Like, who did this? The little girl did. Right. But there's no concrete evidence that Voira did this. If I were going to say someone was a hoaxer, it would be Jim Irving, but that still doesn't fit all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. He just was the most enthusiastic. Jeff was, like, almost sexually interested in her once he was watching her undress and was saying every article of clothing she took off until she stepped into the top of the hallway so or the top of the stairwell so he couldn't see her. And once was heard to whisper, like, I like you, Margaret. Do you like me? And then Jim jumped up and is like, what are you talking about? He's like, I like you too, Jim. But, you know, his heart wasn't in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so Margaret was, she liked Jeff, but Jim loved Jeff. And Jim really was like Jeff's press agent. Like, Voira very much is like, originally is like, yeah, I have a playmate. And then quickly is like, he's ruining my life. I don't want to know him. So, yeah. (laughs) But again, it doesn't, it's not satisfying that it was Jim, especially because how is he making this high-pitched voice? They're trying to be helpful. Her godfather who I think is called Norwood in the record, but that wasn't actually his last name. But he's like, oh, yeah, Jeff kind of sounds like an adolescent girl. It's like, that's not helpful. That makes it seem like it's Voyeur. He's like, no, but it wasn't Voyeur. It just sounds like a girl. Mm. But, yes, I mean, I guess if you picture a voice that would come out of a 
two-pound weasel, it would be high-pitched. <laughs> yeah, we've, <laughs> all, we've all seen the cartoons, right? <laughs> we've all seen the cartoons. This would have made such a good cartoon. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he has a high-pitched voice. Eventually, like, it got lower to more human levels. But at first, yeah, he has a voice that no one in the house was really going to be able to replicate, and especially not Jim Irving, who was 70, I think, by this point. Right. Um, there was one reporter who said that, you know, he had an uneventful visit and he was leaving and suddenly there's like a, like a little sound and Jim Irving's like, did you hear that? He said this. And the reporter's like, I don't think he said anything. And there are other times where a little Jeff sound is heard and then Jim explains what they just heard. But, you know, he was like an interpreter. So huh. it also seems like, you know, Jim had something emotionally invested in this. Right. You know, the other ones would more or less have just let Jeff go, mm -hmm. but Jim Irving would not. <laughs> you know what it sounds like a little bit to me? Um, it, it sounds almost like when we have our imaginary friends when we're a kid and then like no one can see them because they don't believe in them. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminds yes. me of that a little bit. But yeah. I mean, but it could be like a you know but this is like a real manifestation of that kind of concept which I I believe I mean I believe a hundred percent that can happen if that's what this yeah. truly is if this is not a cryptid if this, this is like a spiritual manifestation of Jim you know or or even um, the daughter correct I mean this or a com yeah. or a combination of all of them as you said as you suggested I mean it's just so fascinating it really is yeah. Now, so so did Jeff, did he leave one day? Did they move out of the house? What happened? Well, eventually, Jim Irving died. Um, I think he had anemia, maybe. And it is described that at his death, Voira was there, and his daughter, Elise, who lived on the mainland, came back, and they were there. And they heard a little something, and they saw a broom move by itself, which they assumed to be Jeff, I guess. And so it could be that Jeff was there when Jim was dying. Like, he had been gone, and now he was back. But he didn't say anything. There were just some noises, and a broom moved on its own, which you can't really blame them. Like, if your parents are talking about, like, oh, yes, we have a talking marmot in your walls. He tells us <laughs> jokes. He sings to us sometimes. It's like, sure, Mom. Sure, Dad. Now, we've talked about how... It can be many things, right? We, we went into Poltergeist. We went uh -huh. into Tulpas. Now, you had also mentioned here, uh, when you wrote to me, um, you made a note of ceremonial magic. Um, well, yes, because, well, first of all, Jeff did not like magic. He did not like talk of magic. Um, when a spiritualist came, he's like, he won't, wouldn't come out because he's like, she's going to try to bottle me. So that kind of speaks to, like, he was more of a spiritual entity because an actual mongoose... Mm -hmm. who can talk, whatever, um, <laughs> would not be scared that some witch was going to put him in a bottle. Right. But Jeff was. So, yeah, the, he was scared of magic. And also, like, what Nander Forder was saying at one point is if Jim understood ceremonial magic, he could have summoned forth Jeff using that. But Jim didn't, even though Jim had so many books. Actually, one of the books he had was, I think his name's like Harewith... Carrington, which a book all about Indian magic. Hmm. So it's kind of funny that Jeff the Talking Mongoose said he was from India, given that. That's yeah. very interesting. You know, what what came to mind was when you said that he was afraid of being bottled, that reminded me of the genie in a bottle. Could this yeah. possibly be a gin that we're talking about? <laughs> Maybe. You know, but oh, what's also funny is, you know, Jim, 
Jim always changed what he thought Jeff was. And at one point, he's like, he's some sort of crossbreed between a stoat and a ferret that gave him like a human level intelligence in a throat, which is nonsense. But he asked people, it's like, can a mongoose talk? Jeff said a mongoose can talk if it has taught. And other people are like, yes, a mongoose can talk. They have human brains. They just choose not to. I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is what people told Jim Irving. In your email, you also talked about civil service law. So, you know, a lot of cryptids, paranormal stuff, it just stays in the, stays confined there. This did not. So after the publication of The Haunting of Cashin's Gat, apparently uh, Lambert had talked about this. You know, if you read the book, it's definitely like, yeah, you know, we think that they're crazy. But for slander reasons, we're not going to say that. They're very, like, judicious and political about it. But at this point, Lambert was, had the appointed position at the, so at this point, Lambert worked for the British Film Institute, picking films that were of cultural value. And he, you know, people knew that he had written this book, that he had examined Jeff the Talking Mongoose. So a man named Cecil, Sir Cecil Levita said, oh my God, he's a lunatic. He should not be allowed to work there. Now, what also is interesting is it's possible that this was a political move because Lady Levita liked a guy named Mr. Brown, wanted him to work there. And I guess... Lambert is like, oh, no, he's been stealing or something like that. He was a disreputable character, which got Mr. Brown suspended and then fired entirely. So it's possible that the Levitas had vengeance against him. And so Sir Cecil Levita said, said to a man, it's like, you know what? He is crazy, like made a little crazy motion. He should not work there. You should make sure that he can't work here anymore. And the man is like, I don't have the power to make him fired, but I do have the power to tattle on you, which he did. He went to Lambert. He's like, this is what he's saying. And Lambert's like, went to his lawyer. Is like, all right, all I want is an apology and for you not to say that anymore. And Levita's like, bring it. And so they had a court case. Hmm. And... Levita's whole defense is basically like, I didn't say that, but if I did say that, it's true. And if it's true, it's not liable. Right. This did not work out. And he ended up paying, I think, the equivalent of like more than half a million dollars. Huh. This is <laughs> yeah. a lot back then. Right. And the entire jury got signed copies of The Haunting of Cashin's Gap. Now, this is not to say that the judge or lawyers thought that this was credible. Like, they were constantly making fun of this whole thing. At one point, you're like, the mongoose. Mongooses? What's the plural of this? And like, I think it's mongooses, sir. It's like, okay, we should say it's mongoose for the rest of the case. Like, they were... But despite the fact that they thought this was ridiculous, they could not have it that because you think a crazy thing, you can't have a job. Like, you know, where would capitalism be if we can't believe crazy things? Um, and so that actually, they're like, all right. They had, I think, the Stamp Act that they went in and they checked. They're like, yeah, you know, we really need to have laws so that we can't just fire people willy-nilly. There was another guy working at the BBC where if you got divorced, he fired you. You know, so what goes on in your private life shouldn't affect your job. So that basically formed civil service law in England. And so America took civil service law from them. So because of Jeff the Talking Mongoose, we have the civil service now. Wow. 
It's a direct line. Well, you heard it, audience. <laughs> you heard it right here on Ricky's Mysteries. <laughs> so now you are educated. Now you are. <laughs> wow, that's that's incredible. So like, it that's is. that's a that's fascinating how you made the, all those connections. It's just that's so that's so wild. I'm really yeah. I'm very impressed by that. Now, all, oh, you, yeah. you also mentioned, um, I don't know if you're finished with that part of it, but at the very end, you also mentioned H.P. Lovecraft and uh, My Little Ponies. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, this might just be a coincidence or like, you know, parallel thinking. But in 1933, he published a story, Dreams of a Witch House, in which there is a little weasel it's like a large rat with human-like hands that speaks in a high-pitched voice ah. and says like bizarre things We've, now it sounds familiar sounds very familiar now possibly he didn't know this or possibly hp lovecraft heard someone talking about this because it was in newspapers like this was the bad boy of the era that People were really interested in this. It was funny. And so maybe he heard about it. But we don't know. We can't prove that. But it's weird. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's almost uncanny, if you will, that yeah. it's, it almost fits the exact same description. Who knows? Who knows? Very well may be. Now, you also mentioned yeah. at the very end here, My Little Pony's Friendship is Magic. What, what is that? Well, yeah, that people create tulpas of those. And, you know, not necessarily for sexual reasons, but probably for sexual reasons. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so it's a whole topomancy thing that if you can summon forth a cartoon character, who's to say if you're bored in this farmhouse for years, you can't just make a little weasel to be your friend or your substitute son or pay you the sexual attention that your husband no longer does. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above at once in one little weasel. Jeff, you They're... are a very interesting creature indeed. He is. You were gonna. You were saying. Uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, um, in one of the books, I don't. Or I read one thing where a guy who blames Voyeur Irving says that it is because of the book Ricky Tiki Tavi, where <laughs> there is a talking mongoose. But I read the story. It's not very similar. But they're like, oh well, there's a talking mongoose. So same thing. Voyeur Irving clearly read that. I'm like, I don't think so. And I found that supposed nowhere else. So. Probably not that. I used to get called that, I believe. Ricky Tiki Tommy? Yeah, I remember. That, that. makes sense. Yeah, I, I would be. Yeah, I remember. Gosh, yeah. that was ages ago. Yep, that was like back in the Jurassic period, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, those were good times, indeed. Yeah. So I don't know if we've solidified this. I think maybe we have, but I may not have asked you this. Having said everything that we've set up until now, that you set up until now, what are your thoughts? What do you think Jeff is? I'm not sure. <laughs> I do think that he is more than a hoax. Like, he may have had hoax aspects. You know, the photographs and the hand in plasticine, those are fake. Like, yeah. And, you know, the dog hair. I don't understand why you would hoax that when you know it would be quickly debunked. I think that originally Jeff was something that you know something happened which i know is like that's like my default for the paranormal like i believe something happened i don't think yeah. nothing happened here mm -hmm. and you know that he faded away may just be that the family lost interest but you know people didn't lose interest like he really was in the newspaper even when after the house was sold to a man named leslie graham he said that he killed jeff and 
he displayed a picture of Tim next to it, and it was five feet long and had different colored fur. They showed this picture to Voyer, and Voyer said, that's not Jeff. But it was still enough in the zeitgeist that people are like, he got, you know, newspaper print on the fact that he killed something that wasn't Jeff, but still, you know, is the talking mongoose dead? Yeah, they, it seems like they yeah. just wanted to put it to rest. Yeah, which didn't really work. Like, at some point, Doralish Cashin was just plowed under. It's not there anymore. Its pieces were used to build sheds elsewhere. And it really must have taken some work. But it's still on ghost tours. People still come. I guess there's a fence around it now to try to keep you out. But people are still aware of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. I mean, obviously, they're making a movie of it. So, yeah, it's still there. I mean, obviously, it's in our employment laws, and we should all be grateful to Jeff for that. But, yeah, I think Jeff, I guess maybe I want to go with it was a projection one way or another, psychically or just because of mutual boredom, that the Irving family created him. You know, I don't think that they hoaxed. I also don't think if one of them knew the other one hoaxed that they would allow that to happen. Like, I think Voira... I mean, it embarrassed them so much that I think they would have stopped Jim if it was just Jim doing it. People repeatedly say that Margaret Irving had the stronger personality. And if Margaret's like, this is not happening anymore, it would not have happened anymore. Right. Right. So, although Jim did dominate conversations, like when Price and Lambert first came to the island, they're like, we would like to take Voira and on a little bit of a drive with us because they wanted to interrogate her away from her father. And Jim's like, I will go with you. And mm. they write in the book, it's like, had no intention of bringing him, but he came anyway. And then later on in the phenomena, they're like, we would like, we have a woman who Voira can stay with in England. We could just show her around, you know, I'm sure she'd like to see the machines. You know, she would love that. And Jim's like, no, absolutely not. And then to Nandor Forder, he said, if Price wants to get a girl, he should get a different one or something to that effect. Now, is this all like Jim being protective of his daughter or is he being protective of his secret? Right. Would Voira have spilled the beans? Mm -hmm. But so Price and Lambert were very frustrated that they couldn't get Voira alone. Just a, just a, such a great story. It is. Now, do you have anything in closing that you'd like to share with us? or? Um, sure. I mean, I'm just glad that Jeff existed. Like, he just existed this once. You have other poltergeists, other weird things that talk. Jeff only existed on the Isle of Man for... 10 years and then there's no more jeff you know he is one of those rare things in the paranormal world like the hopkinsville goblin like it just happened that once and they've never come back jeff never came back so i just i'm really grateful to him like that we have this story as weird as it gets he, he is coming back right he's coming back to a theater near you soon that's right and so we'll have to see if there are going to be more sightings of jeff now that he is going to have a major motion picture right you never know we might have some uh we have my we may have some new sightings of jeff it's good he's gonna get his energy yeah. that's all he needs <laughs> we just need we need uh more people to believe in him <laughs> i can't wait to shake his little doll hand do you want to share with us the novel that you're currently writing and some of the other novels that you've written sure um so my first novel was we shadows followed by dance macabre artificial gods and flashed wanton boys there's actually a fifth one that's written should be coming out soon called to save her world it's not out yet. We're getting there. I'm actually re-releasing 
my first four books because the publisher went out of business during COVID. I also post a new story or article every two weeks on TomQuackenbush.com, which is T-H-O-M-M-Q-U-A-C-K-E-N-B-U-S-H.com. I've been pretty good about that. Some of the stories are actually really good. I know that I wrote them, but I look back at them and I enjoy them. I'm coming out with an anthology of some of them called Last Recursions, but that should be this year. I'm not positive. And otherwise, the Curious Case of the Talking Mongoose should be out before the movie comes out on September 1st. Excellent. Looking forward to reading the book first before watching the movie. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, it's interesting how sometimes, um, or actually not sometimes, most of the time, the books are uh, way better than the film, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward yeah. to it because of just how incredible the story is. I can't wait. Yeah. So, there are two, I mean, obviously The Haunting of Cashin's Gap was the contemporary book, even though they pulled their punches. And then there is Jeff, exclamation point, which is very authoritative. Uh, Joseph had access to the actual archives of the material, but my book is more readable i think because he is very detail oriented and i appreciate that but my book is funnier so you want the funnier book <laughs> yes we do yes we do okay oh and uh we forgot to mention uh how do you spell jeff g-e-f i feel like it should be Geff the talking mongoose and called him that for years but it is g-e-f originally he said his name was jack but he decided he liked jeff better well there you have it there you do there you have it tom Quackenbush here on Ricky's Mysteries uh, talking about his new book about Jeff the Mongoose. Yes. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Tom. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to hit the like and subscribe button. If you're a fan of the show and would like to see me dedicate more time to this than my day job, and you'll also help feed the two ferocious barking cryptids here, please visit the Patreon link at patreon.com backslash Ricky's Mysteries. You can drop us a line at rickysmysteries at gmail.com if you have anything you'd like to share and maybe we'll have you on the show. Our photo content is on Instagram and our podcast can be found on Acast. Until then, I'm looking forward to seeing you all next time on Ricky's Mysteries and the Supernatural. Now get out there and find the truth. Mm-hmm.